All right, so we're going to be talking about Pentecost, the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. i got to tell you ahead of time, though, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, but we're going to see quite a few verses. So um, if you want your Awanas, you know, fastest one to sword drill, you're going to love today. Um, if you didn't win that, don't worry about it. Just make your way there as you can. But Acts 2 is we're going to spend a lot of time there, and that's where a lot of our ideas come from. About that we'll be discussing this morning. But by way of introduction, let me just kind of talk about Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost meaning 50, 50 days from Passover. And it was a mandatory feast of Israel, and all were required to come and to celebrate. It was a, a feast and a festival. It was a party in the nation of Israel because the wheat harvest had just come in, and they are celebrating the first fruits of that harvest. Just so happens on the Pentecost uh, uh, day, the day in which Pentecost happens, the first one after um, Jesus rose from the dead is the day that the church began, and it was also the day in which there was a first fruits harvest of evangelistic work. Um, it's believed traditionally that um, this is also the day that the law was given. So on Pentecost, traditionally, the law was given. On this day, but it's also the day in which the grace of the Lord came and um, was poured out upon the church. So it was, a, it was a festive time. It was a joyful time. It was a time of celebration. They're, they're thanking the Lord for the crops, but something else is taking place there in Acts chapter 2, and that is the Lord is establishing his church. It's the beginning of the church. Now, I say it's the beginning of the church. The title says the beginning of the church, but I just... In fairness, I want you to know not everybody believes that Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the church. Some would say, no, 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 the church existed even in the Old Testament. And so that would be typically would fall along the lines of those that hold to a covenantal view, um, the, the theological system. The dispensationalists would say, no, the church began in uh, Acts chapter 2 after Jesus had died and rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. So why do I say the beginning of the church? And it's not a full, I don't want to spend my time on this. I just, I just want you to know that this is out there, and some have a different opinion. But I'll tell you two verses, reasons why I believe this is the beginning of the church. Number one is in Matthew 16, 18, it says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's a future tense word, I will He's, it's not happened yet. I'm going to build my church. This is something that is to come. It's not happened yet. And then in Acts chapter 2, um, and we might as well go ahead and read that now, verses 1 through 4, um, we're going to see this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then it happens again, and we'll turn to that passage as well, and you'll see why this is the beginning. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given, the church begins. Well, it doesn't say begin. Where's your word begin, Troy? It doesn't say it began. So glad you asked. Because in Acts chapter 11, 
verse 15. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the, on the Jews that were gathered there in Jerusalem. But in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, the Lord is wanting to communicate that that outpouring that happened there in Acts chapter 2, it was not just for Jews, it was for Gentiles as well. So Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, and while he's still preaching, they put their faith and trust in the Lord. The Holy Spirit is poured out, and a very similar type of experience happened. They begin to speak in tongues. You can read about that at the end of chapter 10. Well, Peter is called to task. Why were you in the house of Gentiles and having food with them? And he's giving an explanation. And in the midst of this explanation, the significant point to our question of when did the church begin is in verse 15. And he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. So there's more that could be talked about, but for these two reasons... I'm just going to put them out there. Jesus is looking in the future to the build. As Peter looks back at what happened in Acts chapter 2, he declared that it was the beginning, and it was the beginning of the work of the church of Jesus Christ. So, when I say beginning, not all hold that opinion, um, but I do believe that there's biblical reasons for that. Let's talk a little bit about the foundation of the church. And let's talk about the definition of church. The word English word church comes and is related to the Scottish word kirk and the German word, uh, word um, kirk or some, pronounced something like that. And all of those terms are derived from a Greek word. And um, some of you may know this. The, the, in Greek, the word for Lord, does anybody know it? Kyrios. Kyrios. Well, where the word church comes from is from the Greek word kyriakon. So it's kyrios, kyriakon. And Kyriakon means belonging to the Lord. The church is that which belongs to the Lord. But the word that's used in our New Testament for church is the Greek word ecclesia. And that comes from two words, ek meaning out of, and kaleo, which means to call, to call out. We are the called out ones that what? Belong to to the Lord. And so this is how we have gotten the word church. It's, you know, comes through a couple of different languages there, but this gives you the idea of who the church is. Um, the foundation of the church is so important that we know this is that the Lord purchased the church. The Lord is the one with his own body. Acts 20 verse 28, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, what does it say? Which he purchased with his own blood. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for you as a member of the church, but Jesus collectively has died for the church. He offered up his body that he might save us, that he might redeem us. And it is because he has made such a sacrifice and he has poured out so much of himself that we must hear what he has to say. Again, Acts chapter 2, we just read it. The church, the foundation, it began in Acts chapter 2. The church was born on Pentecost Sunday and has been um, almost 2,000 years now, coming up on 2,000 years. The third thing that we read about the foundation of the church, number one, he purchased it with his own blood. Number two, it happened on Pentecost Sunday. 
And number three, that Jesus is the head of the church. And I think it's that first point, knowing that he purchased us with his own blood, that helps us to give him the place of leadership, proper leadership, as the head of the church. He is the head. He is the foundation. He is the builder of the church. And so we look to the head to get instruction and guidance. Lord Jesus, what do you want for your church? It's not up to me to say, hmm, what's going on? You know, what are the trends in our country right now? What are the trends in culture and and everything else? And that's how we're going to decide what we're going to do in the church. That's a mistake. We want to go and we want to spend time reading the Word of God and finding out what He has to say. The head has spoken to us and He has given us all that we need to know. So he's the head. Uh, Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 23, uh, we read, which, picking up mid-sentence of Jesus, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the one that is over all things. He is the head. So it's not Troy. It's not the elders. It's not any pastor. It's not any collection of pastors that get to decide who the church is and how the church functions. It is Jesus Christ. We are the body and he is the head. In uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, we read that he is the foundation. He's not just the one that's giving us guidance and direction and following his will, but he is the foundation of who we are as a church. It says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You're, you might be thinking right now, man, this is not new. Good that you should feel kind of reassured about that right now, that I am not coming up with things you have never heard about the church of Jesus Christ. But I, number one, it's Pentecost Sunday, and there's many directions I could have gone with this message. But today, as I was planning for this and praying through this, I was like, I want to just say it again, the most foundational elements of what the church is. Because for the last year or so, the church has gone through an upheaval. And what is the church and what's the value of the church? And I don't think it's you that's saying it, but the church is not essential or it is essential. And, you know, what does the Bible have to say about the church? Who guides it? Who leads it? And so it's this reason. It's kind of like Peter said, for me to say the same things to you, again, it may seem tedious, but it actually is really helpful for all of us to be reminded of what the church is. The other thing we learn about the foundation of the church is that Jesus is the builder. Matthew 16, 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Christ is the founder of the church, and he has established the church, and he has built the church. It is his work. It is not the work of men. He uses men and women to do that without question. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ who's building his church through us. No, the sad thing is we can be so close to the work of the Lord for so long that sometimes we forget to even recognize what's happening. That it's the Lord. 
Let me give you an example, a really negative example of that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees spent all their time in the Word of God. And when the Word of God in the flesh was in their midst, they couldn't even recognize His working, could they? He would raise people from the dead. Demon-possessed people would be set free. He would give sight to the blind. The deaf could hear. He could walk on water. He could feed you know, thousands of people with just a sack lunch. And they said, he is the leader of demons. He is doing this by the power of Satan. They, they totally rejected his work. And they wanted to, wanted to and succeeded in putting him to death. You can be so close to the work and the ways of God that in your heart can be so hard that you don't even recognize that God is working and moving in your midst. So I'll go back to what I said before. It is Jesus who is building his church and he's using us to do it. He's using us. And we can become so familiar with teaching the Sunday school lesson or leading the home fellowship or leading worship or serving in helps capacity in some way. Whatever it is, however you're engaged in the church, it can become a part of our routine. It's just part of my schedule. It's part of what I do. Okay, we'll praise the Lord for schedule and routine. However, here's what you really need to know. God's building His church through you. Don't lose sight of the significance of you being used by Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't do it apart from us. He gives, he gives us gifts, and then He empowers us to use those gifts. So if we don't work and we don't yield ourselves to what God wants to do through our lives, then his church will not be built. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail. That's obviously a very true statement. So how do we deal with, we'll think of Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches. How do we deal with the statement that Jesus makes when he says, you know, take heed you need to hear what I had to say to you. And if you do not, your lampstand is going to be removed. Your place as a church will be removed. You look in Asia Minor today, Minor today, which is modern-day Turkey, and you think of the church of Jesus Christ, and it is almost completely gone. He always has his remnant. But if you think about what God did through that place, back to the missionary efforts of of Paul and Silas and Timothy and all those guys, Barnabas, and you see where it is today, they are no longer present. So, no, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but we can certainly do damage to the church. And the Lord even warned the church, if you don't take heed to what I have to say, you're going to no longer be a light. It doesn't mean church universal, big capital C church, is no longer effective. The Lord's Spirit will simply move in a new way and a new place. And He'll do that. So you can follow through church history. Where was it that God's Spirit was moving heavily and was really being used? And you can follow and see, okay, then it, it, no, it ceased to be effective. It was no longer yielding to the head, Jesus Christ. And this lamp light goes out and then it goes to another place. And you can follow historically this. This is something that should concern each and every one of us. The church is not me. The church is us. And it's our other brothers and sisters that are meeting throughout this town and throughout the world that call upon the name of Jesus Christ, that believe that he is God in the flesh, that he died on the cross and rose three days later from the dead and that he's coming back again. Those who have that like faith and that like passion, it's the Lord who 
is building the church through us. And we need to see that place and our place in the process that God has, um, in his own sovereignty, decided, I will build through individuals. So that's a little bit about the foundation of the church. Let's look at the priorities and the purpose. And this is really kind of gets to the heart of the message of what I want to share. I think the other stuff is so important for us to know. Um, when you know that he is the, the builder and he's the foundation, when he's the head, then, then you know it's not just people getting together and deciding, well, we want to turn the church and go in this direction. Well, we want to turn, turn the church and go in that direction. No, it's already been stated. The Lord is the one who gets to say how the church is to function. So let's talk about the priorities. It's easy to establish what the Bible declares the church should be doing. This is not a hard task at all. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 in just a moment. You want to, might want to start heading over there. But it's our traditions and it's our preconceived ideas that can make the task of landing upon the purpose and the priorities of the church so much more difficult. Let me give you an explanation of what I mean. Historically, there came a time in the church in England, and, and actually over in the United States as well, where you never took the gospel outside of the church. You didn't do street witnessing. You didn't do open-air evangelism. And along came a guy by the name George Whitfield. And along came a guy by the name of John and Charles Wesley and others like them that became street preachers out in Hyde Park in, in, there in London and proclaiming the gospel to tens of thousands of people. It was such a phenomenon that George Whitfield could speak to such a large crowd that Benjamin Franklin actually went over and did scientific tests on the projection that he had that that many people could, could hear, and just like it was a miracle. But they, the gospel was going out, and people were getting saved. I mean, people were coming off of alcohol, and families were being restored, and people were no longer you know, thieving and criming, and great, awesome things were taking place. But the established church had a tradition that said, you don't preach out on the streets. That's not fitting. That's not appropriate. And so they condemned the work of George Whitfield and, and the Wesleys and others like them. For what they were doing and of course the Wesleys they began the Methodist church and they went outside God goes outside but you see it's our tradition that can get in the way we don't do that yeah but God's word says that you do and there's all kinds of examples of Jesus doing open-air preaching and Peter and Paul and Stephen and and many others that did this but yet the tradition got in the way for uh, at a time, and I think this is something we, we must be honest with ourselves, that that is a challenge that all of us have to deal with, that we don't allow our preconceived ideas, our leanings, our, you know, our, the things that we like the most, our soapbox issues, whatever, to actually take priority over the Word of God. Because at the end of the day, it's not what I want, it's not what you want, it's not even what we want, it's what does the Lord want. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see what the early church did. And this is put in a very positive uh, light of the, the growth of the church and therefore becomes an example of what we should be doing. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. 
Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, and praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved." There's a lot of points that we can make. We're only going to get a handful out of this. I think the most key, the most fundamental issues that we need to concern ourselves, and that is, number one, there was worship that was happening as they were gathering. They were praising the Lord. They were giving glory to God. And when the church gathers together, the church should gather to worship the Lord. This is part of what we do. Now, every aspect of a believer's life should be worship. Your time at work, your time at play, your time serving the Lord, the time when you're opening your mouth and singing songs, all of these things, when we serve one another, all of that is worship. But I want to narrow it down and look specifically upon the idea of corporate worship. That corporate worship has an important place within the body of Christ. Jesus declared to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 23, that God was looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. This is a goal that the Lord has, is to find people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Then in Hebrews 13, 15, we read that we should continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. God wants us to be in the continual activity of worshiping Him and with our lips giving thanks to Him. Not every now and then, the unremitting activity of the church is that we would be people that are praising and thanking Him. In Ephesians 5.19, instruction comes from Paul and he says, that they should be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Seeking and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So when we sing, trick question, who is it for? Well, according to what we just read, two different audiences. One is to the Lord, but it says that we should also be speaking to who? One another. I think this is something that has come to light in maybe a a more prominent way than what we haven't even seen previous. And that is the important place of corporate worship. Listen, you've been listening on the Zoom, uh, watching on Vimeo. We're glad that you did and you worship the Lord there. Do believe that is worship, but you got to admit there's something different when you're together with a room full of people declaring the goodness and the greatness of God. It's a spiritual, it's not just, it's not just some um, you know, emotional thing. No, it's not that. It is a spiritual thing. There it is, Ephesians 5.19. When I am singing songs, when you are singing songs, and we are praising the Lord, yes, it is to Him, but it is also to one another. Because as I hear this brother over here and that sister over there singing and lifting her hands or bowing before Him and raising their voices to the Lord, that speaks to me. They're declaring a truth of Scripture in the songs that we sing. And that is a a declaration of the greatness of God or the need for God or what they desire to see the Lord do in their life. 
And as that happens, and you make that declaration, and I make that declaration to the Lord, we also are making that declaration to one another. Paul, to the Colossians, speaks about the admonition that comes through singing songs and speaking psalms. That it happens. So yes, it's vertical, but it's also horizontal. And so if you are just coming back and you're coming into church, you, you sense that. You know that. And this is an important thing for us to realize that singing time is not show time. It's not just some like unnecessary activity that is a part of the church. It is a statement from the Lord in multiple places is that we would be a people that lift our voices to Him, but also to one another. Because there's an admonishment. There's an edification that comes. You know that. You've, you've experienced it. You might want to read 1 Peter 2.9 where it also talks about this important place of worship that takes place. Now, the word worship in the Greek language is a Greek word proskunio. Pros meaning towards. Kunio, to kiss. To kiss towards. Now, in the day in which the Bible was being written, equals would come, and they would, we don't have this in our culture, but in their culture, many cultures today, they will greet one another with a kiss. A kiss either side of the cheek, and that's the greeting, and that's what you would do with an equal. But if you were coming to greet somebody who was above you, they were your governor or whatever, you would not go and greet them by kissing them on either side of their cheek you would bow and you would kiss towards their feet. It was a way of saying, you are greater and I am not. So that picture for us of the lesser coming toward the greater, the Lord, and worshiping Him and kissing towards Him. It's an acknowledgement as we worship, you are greater than I am. And I'm glad to declare it. And this is what the idea of worship. So it is to the Lord, as it says there at the end of uh, verse 19, making melody in your heart to the Lord, but it is also a one another experience. So priorities and the purpose of the church is that we worship as we worship. I, I, you know, why is it that when they were saying don't worship, and don't sing that it, we decided we were going to do it anyway. Because I don't feel like I've got the clout to tell the head we're no longer going to do it your way. You called for it. You want it. You desire it. Therefore, you receive it. It's not an insignificant part of who the church is. It is at the foundation of who the church is. Secondly, prayer. We read this again in those verses in Acts 2:42 through 47, is that they were um, continually, continue steadfastly in prayers, verse 42. Closely related to the activity of worship, but it has the prayer certainly has worship in it. It becomes a thing of petition and intercession. I petition the, the things I need from the Lord. I intercede on the behalf of other people for the Lord to do a work. And 1 Timothy 2.8, it says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. That is written to Timothy, who's being instructed on how to establish a church meeting. 
This is what the church is. Set the church in order. And here's what's part of the order of the church. Make sure the men are praying. I can remember Pastor Chuck when I was a, a teen going to Calvary Costa Mesa and then well into ministry and going to the retreats that he would say to us over and over again, men, get your people praying and keep them praying. That is, that is a fundamental element of the church of Jesus Christ. So we want to pray. We want to seek the Lord. And as we've said here, we don't want to simply be a church that prays. We want to be what? A praying church. We want to be engaged in the activity of prayer. Not as something that just happens here or happens there, but if you will, when you bump up against Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, prayer oozes out. We're never far from prayer. We're here what's going on in each other's life. We're praying for each other. We, we come together in our meetings and we pray. We set aside special time to pray. And so we have our Sunday night at 6 o'clock. You can come and be a part of that prayer and praise service or the men's Tuesday morning prayer or your home fellowships where you pray or the women's or men's ministry. We want to pray. We want it to be a constant activity in our life. The Lord declared in Matthew 21, 13 that the Father desires His house to be what? A house of prayer. That this would be a place where prayers are offered up. But sadly, prayer is often the least engaged upon corporate activity of the church. And so, I'll just leave it there. One of the fun foundational elements of the church is that she would pray. That she would talk to the Lord. Thirdly, we see that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Teaching was a key part of the church. Remember, Peter had sinned and denied the Lord, and he walked away. He was so sad. He was so broken. He was so grieved. And when Jesus met him at the Sea of Galilee, and he was restoring him back into ministry, it's John chapter 21, verse 15, he says to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter, I'm putting you back to work, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to feed my flock. Jesus is a good shepherd, and he wants his flock to eat. What do, what do the sheep, what does the flock of God eat? We feed upon the word of God. That is something that we give unremitting care for. That's what the word continued steadfastly means. Unremitting care. It never stopped. It never ceased. They were always walking in the apostles' doctrine, which is recorded, of course, for us now in the New Testament, right? That is the apostles' doctrine. And we are to be in that and study that over and over again. Paul, again, to 2 Timothy, uh, in 2 Timothy, where he's telling Peter, uh, uh, Timothy, how to establish the church and what it should look like. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering. In other words, don't ever stop in teaching. This is what you got to do, Timothy. You got to teach. You got to preach the word. Peter, you got to feed my lambs. You have to feed my sheep. In the Old Testament, it talks about in the last days how there'll be a lack of the word of God. That, that truth and knowledge will not be present. And sadly, I mean, you can look at so many churches where the Bible's not even cracked open. You, don't need, you can go to a church and you don't even need your Bible. 
Let me tell you, that's not a church. Because a church is one that is giving unremitting care. You go to a church where it doesn't, you're not trying to find out what Jesus had to say. You're, not, you're going to church where the Bible's not being opened and taught from. You're going to a church where there's not, there's not prayer happening. That's not a church. I don't know. Call it what you want. But it's not a church that the Lord is in charge of. We don't get to decide what to do. This is not the Moose Lodge. It's not the Rotary Club. It's not Troy Warner's Club. It's the Church of Jesus Christ. And he's made it so clear as to what we are to do. And so we will give ourselves to these things. We'll be tireless in this effort. And it doesn't matter what happens. You know, when I first came to town, you, didn't, you cannot imagine how many people told me, pastors told me, I might as well go home, that, that people, this is what they said, people in Lynchburg, Virginia, will never come to hear you open the Bible and teach book by book, chapter by chapter. This is what they told me. And I said, well, that might be true, but the Lord told me to come here, so I'll probably just be preaching to just myself and my family, but I'm going to do what the Lord has told me to do. Obviously, people want to hear the Word of God. They want to hear it taught. And so, when the rest of the world is trending and saying, oh, you know, you can't get people to sit down and listen to a Bible study for more than 15 minutes, my response is, have you tried? Have you tried to do that? Because this is what the church is to do. And so, the teaching ministry, Acts 20, 27. Paul said to the Ephesians elders, he says, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Listen, I don't believe the only way you can teach the Bible is to go from Genesis to Revelation, book by book, chapter by chapter. I don't think that's the only way you can do it. I personally am convinced it's the best way to do it. That's why we do it that way. But to the brother who's down the road and doesn't do it that way and then teaches series and he teaches topical messages, if he's in the Word of God and he's teaching sound doctrine, we cheer him on. And we pray for that ministry and we thank the Lord for what's happening because there's plenty of churches, again, where the Bible's not even cracked open, let alone giving sound instruction and teaching. So it's not that we're better. I'm not trying to say we're better than anybody. It's just what we're committed to do. So if you're new here... You're like, well, you're teaching a topical message. I know, it's kind of funny uh, to make that point. It's kind of funny to make that point. But for the last 26 years, we are on our third time slowly through the entire Bible. And we taught through the entire Bible a fourth time doing one book um, every Wednesday night. In 66 weeks, we taught the entire Bible. So this is our fourth time through the Bible because we're convinced of its value. And we're going to continue to be in it and study it. The beautiful thing is, when the Word of God is being taught, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16 tells us that the church will be established. And when the church is established, that they will be equipped to do the work of ministry. Let me pick up partway through that passage, verse 12, or verse 11. It says, And he gave... He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it goes on and on. He gave pastors and evangelists and prophets and, and, and such for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. 
to bring the church into maturity. For how long? Until we're a perfect man. So how long will we be teaching through the Bible? Until we're all perfect men and women. Last time I checked, we got a ways to go. I got job security. I feel very safe today as I preach to you because I know I'm a part of the same crowd that's being preached to. I preach the message hopefully to myself first before I ever preach it to you and applying it to my own life. But this is the church. is The Word of God is being used. Pastors and teachers are given to instruct and equip the saints to get to work. Also, two, couple, two more points and then we'll begin to wrap it up. Two more main points and one quick, quick hit on the ordinances. Fellowship. They were gathering together. They were sharing things together. As anyone had need, they sold their possessions and divided among all as anyone had need. They were meeting from house to house and breaking bread together. Probably where you get the, uh, is there any biblical foundation for a potluck? Evidently, yes. They're meeting from house to house and breaking bread. But it's probably the breaking the bread was also the sharing in the communion service. So Jesus was at the center of what was going on. They were sharing together. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Probably a lot of you have heard that word before. But koinonia, this is how you define it. Close association involving mutual interests, and sharing, association, communion, all different ways it can be translated. Communion, fellowship, close relationship. We are to have koinonia. We are to have close relationship. We share something together. Business partners could share a business together. They could have koinonia. We share a you know, sheep sharing business together. We have koinonia. We share that. And it was used in everyday language. It wasn't a Christian word to begin with. We certainly think of it in those terms, as we should, and the idea is that we share a mutual faith in Jesus Christ. We share a mutual desire to obey the Lord and follow Him, and to wait for His return, to love one another, and to reach the lost. This is what we share together. This is our koinonia. It isn't, oh yeah, we both like doing X together, so we have great fellowship. Well, you may have great fellowship together, but it's not because you like doing whatever you know, it may be together. It's because you share Jesus together. It's because you share a like passion to fulfill his work and, and be about the kingdom of God. But fellowship, gathering together and meeting with one another and investing in each other's lives, bearing the burdens that another brother or sister may have. The, the idea here in that definition, if you just look at those, those last two words, close relationship. That's what we're to have, fellowship. Close relationship founded upon the word and the work of Jesus Christ. We're not just to be ships passing by one another. We're to get involved in each other's lives. And for some of you, like, that's it. I don't want anybody involved in my life. Well, you have to deal with the Lord on that because he wants people involved in your life and he wants you to be involved in people's lives. This is the, the idea of the Lord. You maybe have been amening about the, you know, the prayer and, and the, you know, the teaching, but now when we start talking about having a close relationship, the amens kind of go quiet maybe in your mind. Why is that? Fellowship was something that was a part of what they were doing. So important. And then evangelizing, the actual preaching of the gospel. It says in verse 47, the Lord was adding to the church those that were being saved. 
saved through the evangelistic efforts of the church. 1 Corinthians 9.22, listen to Paul's total commitment to preaching the gospel. He says, to the weak I became as weak, that I might, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Or in Romans 1.14, he says that he was a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, because he had received the gospel. And it was such a treasure. It was such a blessing. How could I possibly keep this to myself? I must give this away. It'd be like if you found the cure to cancer and you decided to be quiet. Or it'd be like you knew what was going to happen on 9-11 and you were put in the place to warn and tell people and you decided with that information you were going to keep it quiet. Nobody would forgive you. Nobody would forgive you for doing that. Because you had something that could have saved people's lives. But what about us? We have something that can save people's lives. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And without it, people will not be saved. And so we open our mouth and we ask for prayers to speak as we ought. Kind of out of time here, so just quickly, there's a couple of ordinances the, churches, the church has and you know, rites that we can participate in. Communion, we share in communion together, something the Lord established, and also baptism. The church has, shares in the communion meal, it shares in baptism, um, and it's the idea that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would be immersed in water, and being symbolic of how Jesus went into the grave and then came up out of the grave in a new resurrected life. We are baptized, we're put into a watery grave, and we come up out of that watery grave to walk in the newness of life. And you're like, yeah, but some people sprinkle. Here's the interesting thing about just a little bit of history. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. They did not translate the word in the English Bible, King James Version. They did not translate the word baptism. The word baptism in the Greek means to dip or be immersed. But it was being translated for King James. And what do you think his persuasion was about being sprinkled or being dipped? Well, the Church of England believes that it was sprinkling. But yet they're dealing with the word and they're translating the scriptures. And when they come to the word baptism, if they say and use the word to be immersed in water... This was going to cause a theological controversy. So what they did was simply, it's called transliterate. Rather than defining what baptism was and giving it an English word that we would understand, they said, we'll just, we'll just call it baptism instead of baptizo. And so that's how they got around that. But the Bible is very clear. I mean, if you just do a simple definition check, it means to be immersed. And so people are put in the water and it becomes that symbol. And... Most of what I've said right now, I mean, up to this point, it's not, it's not been controversial. I've not intended it to be, but I'm about to fix that problem right now. <laughs> Most of you are not going to find this to be controversial. However, if you do, just think it through. What is the church not? Number one, the church is not a resource for government. The church is not an arm of the government. Now, historically, the church had to work through this. <laughs> Because some of the pastors, even some of the reformers, they were also out with their swords chopping people to bits because they had a different view about baptism or maybe communion. And, and they would seek to establish the, you know, their power and, you know, through the church and with the church and with the sword. And there was very little separation. And they viewed themselves often as like King David over Israel. 
The problem is, there was only one Israel. And the church is not a government. The church, well, you know what it is. We just talked about it. It's a called out gathering of believers that belong to the Lord. It's not about a government. So it's not a, a, a resource. That the belief that the church should function like ancient Israel is not at all supported by Scripture. New Testament does not support it at all. I mean, you say, well, that's not controversial. Well, how about this one? The church is not established to reform society. Hmm, maybe. Maybe a little controversial. What do I mean by that? I mean, don't we want to see our world changed? Yes, we do. But is a world changed when the church sets its focus to reform society? Or is a world changed when the church sets its focus to see people get saved? When people get saved, and then a bunch of them get saved in a locality, it could begin within a family. One person gets saved, and then another person gets saved. And now all of a sudden, the culture that family gets reformed and the way they communicated and talked and act, it's changed. And when a bunch of families get saved in that neighborhood, the neighborhood gets transformed. And when neighborhoods get transformed, then a city or a village or a region changes. And when a bunch of cities get changed and states get changed, when states get changed, the country gets changed. So reform does, has happened in the world because of the byproduct of reformed lives. Lives that have been changed and saved. And the Lord does it. But if we don't keep that straight, then we will end up like so many who have a cause to see something reformed and the gospel is gone from that church. The gospel is gone from its proclamation. And we have to guard against that. So think of a man like William Wilberforce, who God used in a mighty way. But before he got saved, he was just a wild party animal. That's who he was. And then he got saved. And he was um, in Parliament in England. And he was saved so radically, he thought, I am done with government. I'm not going to invest in something that's not going to be forever. I only want to invest in the eternal. And um, I, I think that it, oh, man. Who wrote Amazing Grace? John Newton, right? It's John Newton. I said last service it was Charles uh, uh, Wesley. But it wasn't. It was John Newton that actually convinced him to stay in the parliament and to try and make a change. What subject do you think he wanted? What do you think, what subject would John Newton want to see change in parliament? Slavery. He, he begged William Wilberforce to stay and do everything he could to abolish slavery. And guess what? He did. And it was abolished there. But that's not the only thing that happened through William Wilberforce. Now, before he got saved, it was not a concern. But once he got saved, that became the issue. And here's a lesser issue that became a big part of him, his, his efforts, was the treatment of animals. Maybe that's not anywhere on your radar, but a lot of you care about that. That animals were treated, they were treated brutally at this time in history, and they be, he began to pass legislation that animals would be treated fairly. So, this, see my point? It's not that the church goes out to reform the treatment of animals. We want to see people reformed, and when people are reformed, they'll obey the word of God that says animals that should be treated fairly and right and not abused, and that people would not be enslaved, and so on. 
So listen, we live in a time when pressure cooker, man, it is just at an all-time high, and there's all kinds of social issues. But I'll tell you what, we're going to stay the course. We're going to pray for those issues to change as we become more and more like Jesus Christ and when we see people around us get saved and we'll see society reformed again. But we got to keep the first things first. And our mission is not to reform society. It is see people's lives reformed by the preaching of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Our mission is clear. Our foundation is clear. Thank you that you have saved us. And Lord, we're glad. We're glad for the church. We're glad that we have one another. We're glad that we get to gather today and admonish one another in songs, that we get to listen to your word on the day of Pentecost. Here your church is almost 2,000 years later. You're still building it. And we say thank you, Lord. Would you continue to build your church around the world, but Lord, in our midst, shaping us, changing us to look more and more like Jesus. Lord, help us to hear your plan for us. And Lord, even as you poured out your spirit upon the church, when she began, we pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us.